Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, for a long time in our history, as we look back, we've labeled the prohibitionists as the bad guys in American history and the drinkers as the good guys, uh, always celebrated in film. Uh, it's actually one of the few things that you can get Democrats and Republicans to agree on these days. Uh, but I came across this piece in uh, Politico this week uh, by Mark Lawrence Schrad, uh, who's a professor of political science at Villanova University. Uh, he's also the author of Smashing the Liquor Machine, a global history of prohibition. Uh, and it was just fascinating. It's extraordinarily well written and researched. And uh, he actually joins us on the show now to break it down and uh, give us a little inside look there. Professor Shred, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This will be fun. Uh, so let's let's dive into this. Uh, again, a lot of it is what you see from uh, movies and uh, politics, you know, it, it is always that the uh, prohibitionists were the were the crazy uh, controlling wing nuts and uh, the drinkers were the were the good guys. I seem to have Oops. lost you here. Oh, are you? There we go. I think we got you back. There we go. Okay. Yeah, uh, I hear you. <laughs> uh, so give us just a little bit of the backstory. What uh, what took you into this, and uh, what did you learn? Oh, there's a there's a long backstory to it. But my my area of interest has always been Russia. I was a, you know kind of a Russian studies. My previous books are all about Russia. I lived there and so on, and 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 also about alcohol politics. And so you know if you live in Russia, there's vodka everywhere, as you know you can probably imagine. <laughs> Um, and uh, so you get to know a little bit about alcohol history and, and so on. Um, and it was always very striking to me that sort of the conventional narrative that we have in the United States about prohibitionists uh, is, again, that they were the, the bad guys. And we use the same language to describe prohibitionists, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, um, in the same terms that we use for like ISIS or, you know, the Taliban, that they were anti-democratic zealots who were, you know, um, trying to force their morality on, on everyone. And it makes you even wonder how, you know, you could pass a constitutional amendment with, uh, you know, overwhelming support uh, in all the states, um, you know, if, if we see them as being such, you know, villains. And, and uh, but, you know, the usual explanation that we have in the United States is that it was, you know, it was, it was like a conservative, uh, moralizing cultural movement, um, you know, and, and, uh, if you want to explain why we have prohibition, they say, well, you know, you have to look for, you know, Bible thumping Midwestern evangelical Protestants. And uh, being a guy who studies Russia um, <laughs> and, you know, lived in Russia, 
Uh, I was like, well, you know, Russia was actually the first prohibition country on earth, and there are no Bible-thumping evangelical Protestants <laughs> in, in Russia in 1914. Um, and so that's kind of where I, I started with this. I was like, I, you know, I, I want to get just kind of put the conventional narrative about what causes prohibition from yeah. the American case. I just put it, put it on the shelf, you know, and I want to see what's going on in the rest of the world. Yeah. And what happens when you look at the rest of the world, from Russia to Sweden to Belgium to South Africa to India to Norway, everywhere you find, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not about Bible thumpers. It's not about um, evangelicalism. Um, it, it tends to be more about, uh, I guess the key term in here is they talk about it as the liquor traffic yeah, they wanted to get rid of the liquor traffic, and and that seems like a small word to miss out, but it changes everything. Yeah, and so right? let's, let's let's dig into that just a little bit because uh, sure. I think that in all of the temperance movement, you really make the point that uh, they really weren't going after drinking itself, or or even the drunk for that matter. But it was mm-hmm. it was the the seller. It was those that uh, were were influencing others by the way they were getting people addicted to things, and then that uh, un- unregulated traffic. Uh, tell us a little bit more what you learned there. Oh, yeah. And that's you know, sort of a continuation. It's, you know, the, the traffic was the process, you know, the, I guess the, the liquor is the stuff in the bottle, right? And And the liquor traffic is the process of making money. And getting people addicted, and then you know, bilking them out of their their homes and their livelihood, and so on and so forth. So, and that was as true in Russia as it was in India or South Africa or or anywhere in the United States. Uh, so that was kind of this this interesting continuity. Um, and so even you know, when it comes to looking at uh, you know sort of the, how temperance fits into sort of these reform movements, not only in the United States, but around the globe, you know, essentially they were always making common cause. It was like a, a weapon of the week, as it were. It was, you know, sort of the, uh, like a Trojan horse movement for oppressed peoples and, and people who didn't have political, um, you know, political power, they didn't have representation. So, uh, so it dovetailed obviously with women and, and suffragist movements, uh, with the abolitionist movement in the United States, with with nationalist movements in places like, uh, you know, in in uh, Ireland and India and uh, you know South Africa and, and so on. So, um, so it was it was always just uh, you know kind of taking a global perspective on this kind of takes our conventional wisdom and just kind of flips it completely on our heads. And and once you start recognizing that they weren't fighting against, you know, the, the stuff in the bottle necessarily, yeah. but were against sort of this, this predatory, you know, capitalism, uh, you find that, you know, like all of America's great heroes in one way or another kind of turned out to be prohibitionists, you yeah. know, and so all the guys on, uh, on, on Mount Rushmore had a prohibitionist streak to them as well. And we don't, we don't vilify them in the same language that we, uh, we do for sort of the carry nations of the world and so on. Yeah, I, I love the way you connected uh, so many of those reformers and whether it was women's rights or a lot of these temperance movements, uh, you just connected the Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, Jefferson and, and Washington. Uh, who were some of the others that were uh, engaged uh, and had this kind of uh, prohibitionist streak in them? You want to talk about the United States or around the globe? Uh, let, let's, uh, re- let's go around the yeah. globe. We, we got a few from the U.S. here, but who else connected to that? Oh, starting in Russia, um, you know, uh, where the entire vodka, one third of the entire revenue of the of the Russian Empire was from selling people vodka. It was a, a state monopoly, and so you had critics of the the czarist regime were prohibitionists. You had guys like uh, Leo Tolstoy, the great writer, was a prohibitionist. 
Um, you know, Vladimir Lenin, a lot of the Bolsheviks were prohibitionists, not because they didn't like to drink, but they recognized that by drinking, you were enriching, you know, that was how the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. So we should stop, stop you know, stop drinking in that way. But uh, uh, looking around the globe, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi was a prohibitionist. Um, and again, not based on any necessarily religious element, but more based upon that's how we try to get the British out of India is, you know, the British are making money by selling gin and alcohol to, to the folks in India. Well, if we stop buying it, well, then they don't have as much money to oppress us, and maybe the British will go home, right? And so, so you have a lot of these leaders. Probably the most interesting one from like an international perspective uh, is the, the, the Turkish nationalist uh, Kemal Ataturk. Um, and what's interesting about Ataturk is that uh, he was probably the drunkest leader in all of world history. Uh, he died, I think, at the age of 53 from like liver cirrhosis. He drank uh, like, like a bottle of hard alcohol, a di- you know, a, 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 a one a day. Um, and uh, all he did was, was to, you know, drink coffee in the morning and cigarettes and alcohol. Um, but uh, so it, it was kind of a weird thing. But he was also a prohibitionist. Um, and again, it was, it was not because he had any, you know, uh, deep-seated religious belief. He was a secularist uh, across the board, but it was more about, you know, if we prohibit, you know, this is how the, the Greeks and the British and the Europeans at that point in time were making money was by selling alcohol to, uh, you know, to the folks in the, the Ottoman Empire and then Turkey. Uh, and so it was, it was part of that liberation. It was part of that movement for, for national uh, liberty from sort of the yoke of colonialism. Uh, it, this is such a, a fascinating topic to, to dive in. And really, it's one of those think again uh, moments. We think we know who the good guys are. We think we know who the bad guys are. We think we know who the crazies are. And a lot of times you got to suspend that and really look at it and think again. Uh, Mark Lawrence uh, Schrad, professor of political science at Villanova University, author of Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition. Uh, again, you can see that uh, article on Politico. Uh, book is also great. And, uh, Professor, thanks for joining us and helping us uh, look at that in just a little different way today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been fun. All right. Uh, this is one of those where uh, we really have to think it again uh, because so often we've made the prohibitionists out as the crazies and the bad guys and the drinkers as the good guys. Uh, but it's completely different uh, when you look at it through a slightly different lens. And uh, we're going to continue to do that. Uh, we'll take a quick break and be back on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.